You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Tom May, and this is Future Friday. Today I'm welcoming my dear friend, Kaylee Goldsworthy, to the show. She is a musician and a songwriter living here in Philadelphia. Today we talk about classical music backgrounds and bringing that into punk rock. We talk about touring in Russia, songwriting, and finally my favorite, uh, we got into the spooky side of things. A little Syracuse urban legend, a little Scranton urban legend. Talk tarot cards as a mental and creative exercise, which I thought was pretty fascinating and, and eye-opening as a kind of way to break out of the, the monotony of, of creativity sometimes. Uh, we're talking about building relationship with your fans in this wild-ass dystopian novel that has become our current life. It was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. You can check out Kaylee at Kaylee Goldsworthy and check out the Kaylee G Show on Twitch, as well as Kaylee's numerous recordings that you can hear anywhere music is streamed. I want to thank everybody who's been sending me emails. I really appreciate that. Some really cool ideas that I'm going to follow through with. I met some people over email that I'm going to have as guests. I'm very excited. So thank you very much to Kelly for coming on. Kelly Goldsworthy. Awesome. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Hell yeah. I'm super excited about this conversation. Um, I want to ask you about your life and uh, your musical journey and your, your journey now with your TV show and stuff. Uh, but I was hoping out of the gate, maybe you could talk about what it was like to go to Russia. So I've heard some things that you've said before, and I've heard most of your stories and experiences third hand. But I just find it such a fascinating place that's been on my list for so long. I was hoping you could you could tell me. About sure. It. Uh, going into it, we were kind of like prepared for the worst it's no reflection of the country itself but i know from a touring band perspective that it can be quite grueling and frank's previous tour was very difficult and we already we knew that it was very arduous they did most of their transportation via train um and with as you know with any amount of gear that's just sounds like a fucking nightmare that sounds like a nightmare and just to set the stage for everybody you're on tour in russia with frankie arrow Mm -hmm. uh now you guys are taking a train and you're lugging equipment just like i mean this was not this was not me this was his previous iteration of the band but that is that is what we had known about his his trip to russia previous Uh, so that was like the only story that we had to prepare for this trip was that overall the shows were great but like all of the rest of it was just very unenjoyable and kind of clunky and, and very stressful. Um, and I actually, I talked to Frank about it last I spoke with him and he kind of felt bad because honestly, I had a blast in Russia. I thought it was fantastic. That being said, we also only played a handful of shows. Like we made it a week long tour, I think, where we we played St. Petersburg, we played Moscow, we did a festival in, um, in Ukraine, and and, uh, and then we kind of lumped it into a couple of festivals 
in the UK on our way in and out. Um, so it was a very short stint in Russia, whereas his last tour was like extended, like taking trains through Siberia, that kind of thing. Um, and once you got in, <laughs> I think the hardest part of the trip was customs because customs sucks any country you're going into, but True. for some reason, uh, Russia is very, very specific about the specifics. And we had all of the documentation needed. And I mean, truly, we had to get all kinds of work visas. And and the timelines didn't make any sense. Like, I remember Phil actually had to bring me, like, your Phil had to bring me my Russian visa and passport to the, I think your Crossroads show, yeah, because it so. was, the, and it was the day before I left for Russia. They did not give us our passports back until the day before we were supposed to leave. Uh, having your passport is a lot different, um, especially when you're in a foreign country, but even in the States, I don't know how it is for you, but for for a lot of people, I'm sure, it's kind of the thing that, you, I leave it in a, a fire safe. I don't have it anywhere else. It's like, if you lose it, you're just fucked. Um, yeah. So you have this like emotional security attachment to it. It's just a book with pieces of paper, but you're like, I need this. It's held in the minds of countries and bureaucrats so highly that you just respect it. It's not like a driver's license or something. But Especially in Pennsylvania. Like, it's not even considered a real form of ID. Like, come on, man. Passport is king. A passport is king. So, But the, to get a visa, a lot of people think of a visa, you might have a separate paper or something. But normally, a visa is you send your passport to the embassy of the country that you're going to, and then they put a thing with like your picture, or maybe not, or the specifics inside of your passport. And then they hold it, and then they send it back to you. So you're yeah. saying you didn't get it back till the day before you had to go to the Russia? The day before we were supposed to leave. And so it was just like a very stressful... Like, we all didn't even know if it was going to happen until we all got our passports back. <laughs> which That's is the just tone for the trip. <laughs> insane. Yeah, exactly. So we finally got there, and then customs held on to us for, like, easily two to three hours. I distinctly remember Frank going, if you're not going to let us in, just tell us and we'll leave. <laughs> and I being like, oh, my God, this is an actual conversation that we're having with <laughs> customs officials in Russia like just let us leave and it got to the point where like they we had to uncase everything and show them the serial numbers of everything and show that they matched every article that we were bringing with us and they gave us difficulties because we didn't have the serial numbers of all of our pedals wow and so it was kind of like at this point before we even got in we were like yeah I understand why this was stressful Sure. and kind of a nightmare and it has no reflection of actually Russia itself but just all of the struggles that a touring band has to endure to get into the foreign country totally um so eventually we finally got through and then we were in and honestly it was incredible it was just awesome um the food was super great the people were incredibly kind uh not a lot of people spoke English whereas I know like you tour a lot all over in mainland Europe and you're kind of like, you know, most people will speak some small amount of English so that they can communicate with you, sing along, things like that. Yeah. Um, a lot less of that in Russia than I, I'd ever experienced before. So it was a little difficult in trying to communicate with other people. Sure. Um, and I also always try and learn a little bit of whatever language I'm going into if it's not an English speaking country. 
but I also never thought I'd be going to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> so I was never quite on my radar to learn too much Russian. Sure. Um, but they make amazing, we call them pierogies here, but they're just called dumplings there. Like the potato dumplings, and they also have this dessert one called a cherry dumpling, Oof. and we all would just order them at every restaurant we went to, and like they'd all—I guess it's supposedly some like shared appetizer, but because we're Americans and we're animals, we all ordered a plate of them ourselves. Yeah, we don't get the family style concept there. It's just like, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm getting this. So we got a lot of looks while we were there. Um, we took the overnight train um, between Saint Petersburg and Moscow. So that was cool. We had like our own little Wes Anderson moment where we did have to like rush to get all of our stuff onto the train. <laughs> um, but we also, I believe we had someone else driving separately so that we could not have it be as stressful. Sure, yeah, move the gear. <laughs> yeah, so that was a cool experience to have too, like to be on an overnight train, sleep on a train. Yeah, that's incredible. That's like on the on the bucket list for me would, yeah. would surely be to take an overnight train in Russia. Like that's just the environment. The only thing that sucked about it, because I completely agree with you, it wasn't my bucket list, but it was overnight, so I never saw a single thing. Ah, uh, true. So you're just relying on the atmosphere of the actual train, of like the people that come and go. and Yeah, yeah. so it was very much... I, I I do think that I would like to go on an extended train trip if I yeah. were to ever go back into Russia so that I could actually see what it looks like outside of the train. But yeah, I mean, we did the whole dinner on the dinner cart. It Amazing. Felt, it was very quaint and it felt very um, special because, again, Russia is not a place that you think you're ever going to be fortunate enough to go to and play music. Exactly. Uh, especially with the way, well, modern more modern uh, times politically we've like reverted back to a red scare kind of vibe in some regards um, and the kind of othering and, and they of uh, you know Russian government and, and by default subconsciously maybe Russian people and culture uh, which I try not to but yeah it, it, it's so funny because the way that I think of Russia is from their literature and culture uh, but also the way that I've pictured visually going there is all informed by like you know, born movies and yeah. old uh, '80s Cold War spy movies. So you just picture it using really cool tones. Everything's gray and, and brutal architecture with snow everywhere. But I imagine that it's, it's probably not. actually. <laughs> it's not. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised, and I also felt very um, naive because I did not realize that Saint Petersburg was just there's water everywhere, yeah. and it's beautiful. And I guess again, I just. I usually try and do my due diligence, but it's just that year we toured so, so, so much that I never really prepared myself um, and kind of gave myself the crash course in Russian geography and architecture and things I would want to see because it just kind of came up so fast. Um, But we were walking around these beautiful areas in St. Petersburg and like I saw a wedding happen outside of a castle. I took so many pictures. We walked around Moscow after dark and got kicked out by the police (laughs) Um, just because we wanted to try and see anything and everything we possibly could while we were there. Totally. That's amazing. Yeah. I always found Russia really fascinating uh, besides the 20th century political things that happened there. It's also been historically... You know, a Eurasian place, they take parts of culture that you would normally find in, um, like, East Asian culture, 
a little bit of cuisine. There's, I mean, there's so many different people in Russia as well. They'd be yeah. like, oh, Russian's one thing. A monoculture is, is absurd. But, you know, there's the European influence from Peter the Great and everything in St. Petersburg and then also the Asian influence that kind of meets together and it's just a unique place. Like, uh, I always picture it. One of my favorite parts about going to a new place on tour, especially hit hard in, in Australia when we went and in South America, is that the nature that you see, even driving from the airport to the city, it's all trees that you've seen in pictures and trees that you've seen in real life, but something seems subtly different. There's like slightly different species or the birds are slightly different. So it kind of throws your mind into a different place. And I'm That's really hoping really that that happens point. in Russia as well. Yeah, no, it definitely will. And you're absolutely right because I'd wake up early and walk around wherever we were staying. And the architecture is just like, you notice those Eastern Asian influences. And, and it's just, it's not something that clicks because you're like, oh, I'm in Russia. And then, but like you said, it's so like, kind of linear to think that it's just Russian culture in Russia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I think whenever we're el- elsewhere that we've maybe already been or have a bit of familiarity, you see those subtle subtleties in, in the culture itself. But never having been to Russia and then seeing Russia, it took actually some time to like truly appreciate how Russian and how not Russian it was, <laughs> if that makes sense. That does. That makes total sense. Okay, cool. Oh yeah, like like walking around in Hollywood or something, something that yeah. you, you're so familiar with, but actually not actually familiar with at all. Yeah. All that. Uh, yeah. So what? Tell me about where you came up, like how this, how the, where, why you're sitting here today. You know, like uh, what some people may or may not know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you started learning music uh, on the violin. I did. Yeah, I started in the third grade. and I actually also started violin uh, fourth and fifth grade. I took a very, very long break and didn't keep with it, but that was my first exposure to um, learning to play an instrument as well. And is that why you've decided to start picking it back up again? It is, yeah, totally. That's awesome. uh, Totally. But yeah, so you started in third grade. And I just didn't stop. And it it was also the only instrument, like you had to pick a stringed instrument if you wanted to play an instrument in the third grade. And then in the fourth grade, you could go to whatever band instrument you wanted to play. Sure. So like my sister also started playing the violin, but then in fourth grade, she switched to the flute and then stayed there. Um, But I just loved the violin. And um, I... I don't know. I, there was just something about it that made me want to keep doing it. And then before I left elementary school, I start. I joined the Syracuse Symphony Youth Orchestra. And Very cool. Yeah, it was amazing. And I didn't think about how amazing it was until I got older because I like I played a concert with Michael Kamen when I was in fifth grade. Wow. The guy who did <laughs> Lethal Weapon and toured with Pink Floyd, like, in the fifth grade. And it was just something that, obviously being, like, the Syracuse Symphony is a fantastic and very, very good orchestra. I I grew up very fortunate to have access to that kind of level of musicianship. And also, many of my private teachers were in the symphony. Um, But then to be able to have access to audition for and, and learn how to be in a, a larger symphony like this, the youth orchestra, that was a lot. It also was my first lesson in politics <laughs> because <laughs> I... Um, a large, uh, supposedly meritocratous organization is <laughs> never, never so. I played in that symphony for so long, and honestly, I wanted so badly to excel there and like go up seats every year, and I 
learned that the conductor liked when you memorized the pieces so you could be looking at her. So I memorized every piece and every year I never got up further than where I was at. And I found out that all of her students were at the front and everybody else was behind. And after that, I left my first rehearsal. I think I was in the sixth grade and I was like, mom, I think I'm done. And she was Damn. Like, she, and then she totally was like, that's fine keep the folder because the folder was like a $50 deposit ah <laughs> uh, no shit yeah that's a, she a was like, fantastic mom response screw them yeah. screw it's them. funny I think there's two stories in there that you just highlighted one of them being that the experience of playing with uh, Mike well, sorry what was his last name Michael Kamen so that experience hooked into you like that uh, opened the door kept you like excited about it and I think that a lot of people in the creative field can point to similar experiences that young that age like fourth fifth sixth grade um, yeah. Even my friends that are like geologists can be like, oh, yeah, you know, we went to this. Somebody was telling me recently that became a geologist that they had run into a thing at Knoebels Amusement Park that was like fool's gold and a bunch of other shit. And that just stuck with them forever. But this yeah. experience, amazing that you ran into that. But then in the same breath, you run into something that completely pushes you away from it. And that is surprise, a person will, you know, willfully or ignorantly or whatever being a complete asshole. <laughs> yeah, I think, but I think it was also like such an important, exactly what you're saying. It's It was so important because it was like two sides of the same coin where like I had this unbridled passion towards playing music because it was so cool to watch a composer. And I still, to this day, I actually started doing more research and learning how to score films because he he conducted us while sitting at a grand piano and playing and we played the theme from Circle of Friends, which was like an old Mini Driver movie. Um, but the theme is so beautiful. And I, I don't ever remember having felt music so intensely at such a young age than being kind of like in the organ. You know what I mean? Where like usually you're listening to music and, and you're watching it happen, but I was like feeling the music while it was happening and I was playing it and I was in it. Um, and I just thought it was so cool. And also like wanting to make sure that no matter what I did with music, that like I made whatever, you know, violin for all intents and purposes is sometimes a nerdy instrument once you get into high school. Yeah. I never wanted it to be that because it's so powerful and it's so cool. Yeah, I feel like that dragon is what we're as musicians constantly chasing after is that Absolutely. complete immersion uh, being you are the music in a lot of sense and that's what Absolutely. makes the live show so good which we can't have which is why we're here yeah. talking. <laughs> and then at the same time it also taught me that no matter how hard you try sometimes life's not fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact these days I'm, I'm starting to, to be inclined to think that the definition of life is is unfairness suffering and that we should just embrace it. And I feel like learning to navigate the things that you can't control that lead exactly. to suffering. The only sh the only sureness in life is what they say death and taxes but I guess if you don't ever uh, make money you wouldn't pay taxes but you're definitely going to die. Uh, sorry you were right about to start talking about the high school kind of situation that happens with classical music. So I went back to playing violin again in high school in 11th and 12th grade. I was extremely lucky that I had an incredible teacher, Miss um, McConnellog, that allowed me to take a, be the only person to take a music theory two class. So I got to sit in a room by myself um, and take it while the other people were taking the first class. She'd come in the morning, give me the assignment. But just having her as a teacher was amazing. But I did see what kind of happened with violin and orchestra in high school, or it became kind of 
sterile in a sense or like uh yeah competitive in a way that wasn't necessarily about the music you know i understand that the best of the best should rise and that you should be you know celebrate how someone can be fucking incredible but it kind of like took some of the music out of music and i don't know if you if you experience the same thing absolutely and i also think that you kind of touch on a really important part that plays a role in anyone who enjoyed music in high school and it's the teacher (laughs) (laughs) Um, because my high school teacher Mr. Bryn was the coolest and um, yeah I mean there's this there's a degree of of not funness that happens when you're in high school with especially with symphony or band or any kind of classical iteration of music that you choose to pursue Um, I always valued and I took with him the fact that he really leaned into what we thought was cool so like and also I I loved him and I just we got along really well so I would also kind of I I was concert master and I would always be like yo you know it'd be really cool the Jurassic Park theme song we should totally play that and then then like you know the next year we play the Jurassic Park theme song or something like that so that it was actually like something that we all looked forward to playing and even as a music instructor that when I would teach kids on my own um, in the years following like it was always like, okay, once you master this Beethoven piece, we're going to learn whatever song you want to learn from the radio, you know? Yeah. Because keeping people inspired is the only way to um, to keep them on that path because otherwise, yeah, like, it, it, it it's bland otherwise. Yeah, totally. And, I, and now that I'm older, I wonder what went into all of that. You know, it's great to have the transaction of it where we'll get the kids to do the hard thing so they can do the other thing. I wonder how much of it is like, well, the... The family that bought all the violins wants to hear the Beethoven right. thing when they come to see us, so we better better make sure that happens. Yeah. Um, another part of the, the the classical kind of training, uh, I don't even know if I'm using classical in the right context, but the the school training of band and orchestral kind of stuff, at least in my experience, some of the people who were the best weren't able to jam. Uh, I think yes. there was a little bit of a dichotomy or a a crossroads that split because you knew. People that aren't, I know people, I mean, I can't read sheet music well today. I can definitely can't sight read while I play guitar or piano or violin or anything like that. But there's people I knew that were in my orchestra that were really fucking good, like amazing. They were just blazing through shit. They were going to get scholarships and stuff. Mm-hmm. But we would jam, I'd have my, left an acoustic guitar in the room and be like, all right, well, I'm going to play, you know, these chords. Uh, why don't, you know, why don't you play something? And they would just be like, uh, I don't, what, yeah. I don't know. I uh, So I continued to study violin through college, and I studied um, violin performance at Fredonia State in Western New York, which in and of itself is super cool because Dave Fredman's studio is there. So there was always, like, no shortage of incredible bands coming through and recording Amazing. in Fredonia. Um, but, yeah, I learned really early on that some of the best people in the symphony, best people in the band, like... Anyone can learn to read music, but not everybody knows how to hear it. Um, And that's something that whenever I was teaching music, because I caught on to this really early on, that if you learn how to, you know, anybody can go to guitarwhatever.com and find the tab for whatever song they want to learn or the chords for whatever song they want to learn. But not everybody approaches music like, I'm going to listen to this Ramon song and I'm going to figure out the chords before I look online. Yeah, I want to hear the chords. I want to hear how 
how like I want to hear the difference in those two chords when they move from one to the other and I want to be able to figure out what that difference is and how to play it um and I I think that and it's no disrespect to the people who can only read music because they are some of them are eons better than I will ever be at the instrument but if you start playing a song and expect them to play along with you it'll never happen yeah and I, I was always really fascinated by that. You know, obviously being in a at a music conservatory, like there were the jazz <laughs> majors who excelled in both of them immensely. <laughs> sure, but, the savants. Yes, exactly. But I did, I did find that there were a handful of people who kind of like drove straight down the middle. Like I was not, I was not in the bottom half of my class in violin, but I was not, you know, the top either. But I was that kind of unique individual who also could jam with my friends sure and just like jump right in and it's funny because even as i've gotten older i've played the guitar almost as long as the violin and sang you know longer than both of them but the violin is the instrument that i feel the most comfortable on like if anybody starts playing a song i don't have perfect pitch but i'm I'm a half step off so usually like i'll land on the note first or second time and just kind of go with it yeah. yeah, and then by then you can get the scales. Because that was like, you know, one thing I ended up telling people was, okay, well, this is in G major, and I know that you've practiced the G major scale for hours, so just pick any note in the scale and just play it whenever you feel like it. Yep. And try to try to shake somebody into that. I don't think it, it's necessarily the fairest analogy, but it's almost kind of like uh, the difference between cooking and just following the recipe. So, like, um, you know. That's a really good just, analogy, I think. Yeah, like people who taste the sauce while you're cooking it or you can just follow the recipe. Because if you follow the recipe, you can be really fucking good. Um, you know, the, if it's, the recipe is great, then the food's going to be great if you follow it perfectly. But um, you know, if you want to make it taste how you want to taste it for you or for what you got going on, you know, that's uh, – I feel kind of pompous pulling that. But I think I've done enough cooking the last year and a half at my house that I've now – I'm now an expert. Well, not an expert, but I have fun. You're an uh, expert I've, I've in your house. It. I'm an expert in my house. Yeah, I know where every utensil is, mostly. Actually, I usually have to ask Beth Ann where some of them are. But, Man, if I was yeah. still selling Pampered Chef. That would be so sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've, uh, you had a great um, solo career going. Uh, you make awesome music. You have the, 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 the uh, Kelly G Show, correct, is what you're yeah. calling it? Yeah, yep. you are working on all that now. Recently, I know you've played in a lot of bands, your own and with other people. I was wondering, as somebody who's played in the same band for, for almost 15 years now, how does playing with all of those other musicians inform your personal songwriting? Are you able to kind of like notice what somebody's doing and then take that or subconsciously move it? Or is it like... Yeah, yes and no, honestly. I, and thank you, by the way, that was very kind. Um, I, uh, I really enjoy playing with other bands because I have always felt, especially... Ever since I decided to do solo music, I kind of hate solo songwriting. Like, and by kind of hate, I mean I fucking hate solo songwriting. I love working and riffing off of other people. And if I'm writing a song and I'm the only person in the room writing the song, I have the way that I write every song and it gets really redundant. And so I've learned that in touring with other bands, not only does it help inspire, you know, like for example, Bayside, their chord structures are so much more complex than I ever thought that they were. 
just from a, as a listener, for example. Yeah. Um, because they're like this cool pop punk rock band that you know they all the songs are very straightforward cool they like anthony has a really cool inflection in in the percussiveness of his lyrics and his phrasing which i really admire and enjoy but then every once in a while they'll throw in a chord or a bridge that is just so unexpected and having to learn all of their songs (laughs) You know, I would catch on and be like, oh, I get it. We're doing this this thing that, that they do. Um, and um, Yeah, so r- right there, you mean this thing that they do, it could be like, so we've all got these tricks and we've, yeah. got mil- we've got ones that we hammer into the ground and you're talking about, oh, after the chorus, this is the chord. You know, you go to the relative minor and yeah, exactly. to the fourth or whatever, like that kind of shit. You're like, oh, that's, and it's what makes a Bayside song sound like a Bayside song. Yeah, and it's and it's that thing that you didn't put your finger on until you actually had to kind of like dissect it. And yeah, learn it. exactly. Um, and so I've been fortunate enough to do that with a lot of different bands. And before I even took the plunge into solo work and hired gun stuff, like back in 2013, I was a hired gun for a band called Young and Sick that was on Harvest. And it was an R&B pop band. Like I was completely in over my head. I didn't even understand the genre of music at all. It was just fun. Um, and... I love challenging myself and like in a completely unpretentious way like just I having the opportunity to play pop music R&B music punk music like being in the mermaid and having that like B3 kind of mentality like the number of YouTube videos I watched of people playing B3 just so that I could learn like the little subtleties of it so cool that's like the 10,000 hour thing that gets argued over and debunked constantly, but yes. you know, it's true to a degree that you, like the Beatles played in Hamburg every day for seven hours forever, and that's why they became the Beatles. So like you, you get this background and you just soak all this up and take the parts of it that you like. You know? Yeah. That's why like multicultural societies make the best food and art and shit. You get taken sure. the good shit from everywhere. Like, uh, yeah, it's the best. So I kind of think of like, myself as just kind of all of these experiences that I've gathered to not only help me craft a song, but also like how I want the song to sound, taking, you know, stealing little tidbits of things that I've learned from all of these different bands and all different genres. You know, it's, I feel super, super lucky to have been able to. And it was funny because when I lived in Nashville, obviously I was friends with a lot of people who do the hired gun thing and play in a bunch of different bands too. So it was kind of fun to um, have those experiences with those other musicians as well. Then I did also notice about Bayside when we toured with them, watching, being like, oh shit, these songs are, these chord progressions specifically are so much more complex than I'd realized. Right? I would compare it to like kind of metal movements, but with, uh, you know, nicer sounding pop stuff. And there are, they're good, damn good guitar players. So, yes. And, and all, every one of them is damn good. So, yeah. it, it makes sense. So, you just uh, mentioned being in Nashville. So, you've lived in a lot of places. Yes. Um, and that's, you know, has informed your life, I'm sure. And I've heard you on other podcasts and stuff talk about that. Uh, but to, to bring up Nashville, my fiance, Bethann, whom you know intimately, loves that fucking show, Nashville. <laughs> loves that kind of uh, very, like, easy is it to still digest. On? It is not. I think they killed all of the characters off. Wow. Okay. At least that's what I would assume by how upset Bethann was. But, uh,. <laughs> So I got to ask you, I hear that you are a big fan of kind of rom-com 
book book club of the month kind of situation like this is, is this true. is this a guilty pleasure that you have or, or a, a very non-guilty pleasure it's a not guilty pleasure because i feel like especially over the past year whatever fucking makes you happy just like <laughs> hold on to it and never let it go you're damn right i, I agree with that wholeheartedly i mean it's oh, not yeah. something especially touring all the time with a bunch of dudes it's not like i'm gonna be like guys can't we watch how to lose a guy in 10 days tonight like i'm tired of watching <laughs> whatever yeah. fucking star wars but exactly that that was another thing i wanted to ask you about i wanted to ask you about what you love about these books but we'll, we'll bring up the touring thing in, in a second but what makes them what makes them good like what do you like about it about what Rom-coms? The book, yeah, rom coms. Okay, yeah, the, yeah. I think yeah. I just like. Basically, I don't. I've never been a huge TV watcher, but when I am, like, I feel like I don't get anything done. So my problem was always like I would just binge watch. Like I fucking love The Bachelor and Bachelorette. <laughs> I have yeah. a fantasy league. It's out of control. A fantasy um, league instead of baseball. It's Bachelor. It's the Bachelor contestants. Wow. Yep. I've never heard of that. It's amazing. Um, it's just funny and it's just lighthearted and it's just kind of ridiculous. But I think honestly, reading those kinds of books just like makes me feel a little smarter for reading it instead of binge watching it. <laughs> I guess I, I backed that. Yeah, is, I is my that. thing. And so like I breeze through at least two books a month, but like I'll never tell anybody what titles they are. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that so much. But also, yeah. it's so much nicer to like kind of flex that muscle and read more um and just read shit that like you'd you'd watch on tv like there's that bling empire that's new on netflix that i've been watching and i just can't stand it but i also can't not watch it whenever i have the tv on and i'm like i'd rather read a book that is like essentially uh when harry met sally or you know like something that's just kind of cute and funny and everything that you need and nothing about reality 100 <laughs> percent. i think that uh we should embrace that. A lot of times in creative circles, people kind of are pushing each other and get a little bit competitive about who can be the most highbrow, even though, you know, none of us are really highbrow. But uh, yeah, I think reading quote things like that is fantastic. I do the same thing with like self-help books and I love my shitty YouTube videos. But it, yeah, it's interesting what you say to exercise that muscle in your brain while reading. I know some people beat themselves up because they don't read very often. And, well, you know, that's I fine. did. I used yeah. to beat myself up because I'd only read nonfiction because I thought I had to learn and exactly. I was reading. You're like, well, I have to be doing, I have to have a goal in mind. I can't yeah. just sit here in my room and, you know, technically, telepathically communicate with the author in the past and hallucinate what they're saying. But uh, And after yeah. 2020, I was like, if I have one more fucking person telling me how to live my life, <laughs> even if it's going to benefit it, even if it's going to make it better. Like I started reading that book, Burnout, about burnout, and I got burnt out reading the book. And I was like, I can't do this right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I back that 100% and uh, I totally relate to that. Uh, so before you mentioned about how you didn't want, you know, you, you're not, touring with a bunch of guys uh, is not something you'd be able to just pop on when Harry met Sally, that kind of situation. So I know one of the, a lot of my friends that are female musicians, the trope of being asked by interviewers um, about like, well, what's it like being a girl band, et cetera, can get into the territory of being, you know, more malicious than just corniness. You know, it can be like uh, carry all kinds of weight with it. But with that long caveat, what is it like in a, uh, or what are some of the thoughts and feelings that you have about being um, a woman in what is traditionally and currently still is a, a pretty male centric space, even if just by reality, like most of the people who are on tour in punk rock and this kind of rock situation are going to be guys. Yeah, I I mean, 
I only have like my reality to base it off of, in which case I'm used to it. So I kind of like have figured out how to kind of navigate and know that I'm pretty much going to be the only girl. (laughs) And I've, you know, having been in a band for as long as I have been, I did at one point have a band with my sister, so I had her. But then outside of that, it was, you know, it, it definitely has its good, bad, and ugly aspects of it. And I think at this point in my life, at this age, and with how much I've done in my career, I feel confident that I'm able to make better decisions for myself. Um, I'm able to pick and be more picky about the projects that I will say yes to, about the people I would choose to tour with, whereas maybe in the past, taking the opportunities that are presented to you, and then obviously having to deal with any fallout from like any slight red flags that arose Mm -hmm. in any of the conversations I've had previous or experiences, things like that. Um, but not delving too much into like the bleaker territory. I feel, um, you know, very confident that I'm at a point in my life where I'm able to make the the right decisions for me. And honestly, I've only worked with like really respectful people. And also, thank God, I wasn't touring as much when I was like in my early twenties because they're all like men now. You know what I mean? Like they're yeah. all like. 35 plus yeah <laughs> men. grown up so it's like yeah. actual you know men and not not boys which yeah. is a, a case for us in a lot of ways and you know everybody that we toured with it was yeah judgment free just kind of like analyzing what exactly is that like you know what is uh what are the implications close quarters it's real close quarters oh yeah it's like being on a submarine you know like you're just kind of you don't have pri- it's like privacy is just not a thing like you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> everything that you do everybody knows when you take a shit everybody knows like what's happening everyone eats together for the most part and especially in those early days where no one had any any money you couldn't do anything independently because you completely relied on each other for literally sustenance so you kind of like yeah i was like all right well how are we doing this and just yeah and even now as we're all grown it also is just very close you got to be next to somebody I think also being a very independent person was something that like really, and maybe, you know, I'm not sure which came first, the chicken or the egg in that, because maybe I became independent because I needed to like be able to separate myself from the rest of the group. But I've always been the kind of person that like will on day one, because I'm also a female and an (laughs) over-communicator, be like, yo guys, if you guys go to eat without me because I'm not here, I'm not going to be pissed. Just like I'm going to assume that you're not going to be pissed if I go off and do my own thing. Yeah. Um, and that is that kind the of, equivalent of walking in and beating up the, the biggest guy there, like in jail? So he's <laughs> gonna come in, set it up on day one. I think it was just you know. Also, it's so being in a band and touring in a band. Like there is such this like group mentality where like everyone has to do, everyone does everything together. Everyone waits for everyone else, and I think that that's beautiful, and I think that that's great. However, once you reach a certain point where like there is enough free time like if you're fortunate enough to tour on a bus if you're fortunate enough to like have a few hours between sound check and when you have to be back to stage um you know you don't always if there's a place i want to eat i'm going to tell the band this is where i want to eat 
if you're going to join me, sick. If you're not, that's fine too. But like, I'm going to leave now. Yeah, this is the time I'm going. (laughs) Otherwise, you're going to wait 45 minutes for the last person to put his shoes on. And then he's going to be like, I don't want that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or do what I had done many times, look at the menu and then leave everybody there, which I don't give a fuck about. I'm just like, you know, I love you you guys. I'm with you 24 hours, but I'm out. You got to, you got to do what you got to do because like personal happiness, especially when you're in that like pressure cooker of a bus, a van, whatever. And I think that that's probably something that saved my ass multiple times over is just the ability to be fine if if I wanted to do something different than everybody else. Yeah, hell yeah. Uh, speaking of putting a positive note on something that is negative, uh, just by definition, do you have anything that you take into consideration or any advice for saying no? So you mentioned that you don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. Your growth as like an independent person in these social situations. And specifically, you talked about picking and choosing which projects you were going to work on. How do you say no? Because it's actually can be really difficult, especially in our world where there's a lot of people constantly trying to connect with each other to grow. I mean, you know, we're all artists collaboratively. Yeah, I honestly, this is not like the, the best answer to be completely honest with you because I feel as though I'm only able to put myself in that situation now where okay. I've amassed enough on my resume to know that like if I say no to this it doesn't mean that it's going to be a no for everything else Sure. and I do think that perhaps as a you know I know that it's the same regardless of your gender or how you identify but I also know that like um, especially with women in music it's very difficult because absolutely there's not as many opportunities so for a long time it was say yes to everything say yes to everything say yes to everything and then eventually you learn good or bad whether or not it was a good decision for you um and i you know dealt and suffered through several situations where after all was said and done and i was able to separate myself from it i was like i would never do that again but To put a good spin on it, I also never would have known what it was that I needed to say no to if I hadn't existed in that and known what it was that, like, I will not tolerate this personality. I need to make sure, like, I I also have a really hard time with, especially in the hired gun realm, like, why we're all just quiet about our our rates. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because to me, it's just like, why would we, if we all knew what everybody else was going for, like, we'd all make more money. Is, and are we you all... threatening to unionize right now? Is Maybe. That... <laughs> That's Maybe. a running joke in our band of like the crew is going to unionize uh, and then we'll have to have negotiations with them. And yeah. I mean, I just feel like, especially with women in music, like we undervalue ourselves. I continue to undervalue myself. Um, I made a joke to a friend of mine who was like, hey, would you like to get some freelance graphic design work? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, but I'm only going to give it to you if you promise to do the going rate. And I was like, joke's on you. I don't know the going rate. (laughs) (laughs) So it is definitely a weird unspoken part about all this. Um, Not only because the money is like sporadic in and of itself, like a lot of times, you know, we don't know how much money you're getting well you do know but you don't have a lot of money for a project sometimes you have a lot of money for a project sometimes a tour is going to pay very well sometimes it's not so it's all kind of like feeling and going back and forth but the whole unspoken part of it has always been uncomfortable to me Uh, same and and what's funny too is that it's it doesn't even necessarily amount to the money per se because it's more so just about the transparency of the transaction whereas like in some instances there would be projects that i would happily do for half of what I would do for other people's projects. Yeah. And I think to that degree, you know, 
it's your own personal decision as to how much you'd like to be able to do for this specific thing. But in a lot of other situations, especially with touring, um, you know, I do think that you need to kind of find your value and stick to it to some degree. And again, it's going to take a lot of less than gigs or free gigs in order to actually give yourself the power to say no. But I think that's the ultimate how you learn to say no is that you say yes to to too much. And then (laughs) when you finally have the resume that enables you to be like, if I say no to this, it sucks, but there will be other opportunities because I'm out there. Thank you for that answer. Thanks for summing it up too. I, I like that because it is—it's difficult to say no sometimes. Sometimes you just want to be agreeable as well. You don't want to like put someone in a position to take it personally. But then I'm sure, as you've noticed, as we've gotten older, that the people who take something like that personally—it's not good. Like you don't want to necessarily work with them anyway. Uh, yeah, it's I, just not good behavior. Like it's not love. It's not from a loving place. It's not like yeah. right. And also. Again, it's kind of like one of those things where you sometimes have to knock people off their high horse if they're like ever like, you know, what does this person think about me? And you're like, yo, nobody thinks about you. And it's not a bad (laughs) thing. It's just like nobody spends their time thinking about you. And you have to like use that as a point of strength. And it's the same thing in music because it's like, yo, if you say no to this job, they're just going to find someone else. Yeah. Like it's it's not they're not it's not going to hurt their feelings. (laughs) They're just going to find someone else. And to some degree, the reason why you have to say yes is because you know you're replaceable, so you have to say yes. But yeah. then eventually you learn that you should be replaced if they're not paying you enough. Totally. Yeah. It's growing pains in some yep. regards. Nowadays, we just hire our manager, Tim, to tell people no. It's uh, <laughs> it's kind of nice. So I, I'm kind of copping out big on that one. But recently, there's been some it's situations where people have like, called me or asked me something and pitched something, and I'm just like, No. Uh, sorry. Thank you very much for thinking of me, and I really love that and respect you for doing that. And I'm kind of, I'm, you know, it's extremely flattering. Be like, hey, you want, you think I'm good enough for this? So we talked a bunch about music stuff. I got one more music question, and then I'm hoping we can get into getting a little bit of weird, weirder sure. territory, which is where I, where I like to go. Um, what's your writing workflow kind of technical situation look like? Like, how do you? Let's say you're going to record a demo in your house right now. What do you? What, what are you working with? Like specific gear. Yeah, sure. Like what you, you got it plugged in. You have like an yeah, interface set up to a laptop. I, use, or? I have an interface set up into a laptop. Um, cool. I use Logic. I use nice. the Scarlet interface, that 2i2 cool. interface. Um, I have a handful of microphones that I've snagged from my father's studio that he currently is not using right now. Badass. Which, side note, anybody listening to this, I'm also using a microphone right now that was from your father's studio. Yes. Awesome. It sounds fantastic. Favorite microphone I've ever owned. That's a TLM 103. That's so awesome. I have, I'm using this uh, baby bottle blue microphone. Cool. Oh, Um, yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. And I really like it. So I basically always have this set up the microphone, the Scarlet. um, And then I just will plug into Logic. I need to become so much better at figuring out how to program drums to some, just to some shitty anything but i'm yeah, really just bad to be able it. to go do you have yeah. you ever used the virtual drummer that's in logic there's nope. like uh oh my god so there's there's virtual drummers and each one has a name i have I think, tried have you tried it i've Kyle, tried it i, I think just is don't the west like coast it. guy oh yeah no. <laughs> i it's hate it great. so much yeah. um even for the theme song for my show i like struggled for like weeks i was pushing it off in meetings because they're like why don't you have the theme song yet and it was because i was like I can't drum. 
And then, like, duh, I live with a fucking drummer. I just went downstairs, <laughs> and I was like, yo, Joe, I need to go for a run. Can you just, like, give me eight bars of something that sounds like this? And then he did Amazing. it in, like, five minutes, and I was, like, kicking myself because why did I waste so much fucking time just mm-hmm. stressing over it? It's just kind of a throwback to what you said about being a writing by yourself, which mm-hmm. is that it kind of sucks in that you, you can be a songwriter. You have a melody, an idea, lyrics and stuff. But you can't be like a drummer, a bass player, a guitar player, a violinist, and a keyboardist at the same time. You sure could as a producer, like, you know, like the great producers, but it fucking sucks. It's like I've yeah. been playing violin for 20 years. I don't need to learn drums now. No, I don't want to learn drums either. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. So yeah, that's my setup. And I, I kind of keep, I mean, with all the Twitch streams and the shows that I do, I do keep the microphone set up. And so it's just kind of always ready to go. And then I have all my guitars behind me. Nice. Yeah, that, I think that's a really big point and a really important thing to do, at least for me in my life. And what a lot of people ask me, I tell them is that if you have something that's just ready to go, you're more likely going to use it. So like much people easier. ask what the best interface is. I'm like, well, it's the one that you have. Uh, the best camera is the one that you just might be your phone because it's there. You know, et cetera. Best guitar is the one that your neighbor lets you borrow, like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that, as far as the vibe of 2020 has learned, and hopefully the, 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 the going forward, the vibe of 2021 is just let it be easy. Like, what does it look like? It doesn't it have to be expensive. Yeah. At all. No, especially with today's technology, the best, you know, a, a three or $400 microphone today or cheaper is as good as like the best one mm-hmm. was a little while ago. Um, but yeah, I was hoping to pivot a little bit to some weird shit. Sure. Now, I know that you are into some of the same things as I am. We talked previously earlier about a little bit of reincarnation ideas. I know you've got a, a, a pension for the tarot cards and things like that. Um, but did you have any, what were the urban legends where you grew up? Uh, in Syracuse, right? In Syracuse, yeah. yeah. Um, who were the who were the were the kids afraid of? There is a spot called Thirteen Curves, um, where I don't fucking remember where exactly it is, but uh, it was this street that was really notoriously shitty, especially in the wintertime, because it was Thirteen Curves, and apparently folklore was that there was this old. Like this wedding, this couple on the night of their wedding got into a car accident. And so when you're driving around the 13th curve, you'll see the woman in her wedding dress. That was the big one. Um, and then we had almost an identical one, you know, 200 miles away from you guys. So it's just I'm glad to know that, that everybody's telling each other the same stories. Yeah, there's the same. My parents had a cabin up in the Adirondacks, which is where they live now. Um, and up in Big Moose, there is this hotel that is just notoriously haunted. And apparently you can see the woman who died on her wedding night in her wedding dress floating in Big Moose Lake. Amazing. Um, which, but that, to me, way scarier. I've always been like a lake swimmer. Oh, fuck that. I can't. Side note, I'm not. I don't. I will jump in the lake, mostly because I don't want anyone to see my fear and then be able to exploit me later. But I cannot stand getting in water where you can't see what's underneath you. But that's the that's the problem with that ghost story. And also, I mean, I grew up in like around lakes so lake swimming was never a problem to me and then my sister lives in chattanooga and they we go paddle boarding in the river and then i went to the aquarium like a week later and found that they did a um an exhibit on the creatures that live in the river (laughs) 
I haven't gone in the river since. They look like <laughs> eels with teeth, and it's terrifying. Yeah, that's horrifying. Are mm-hmm. they musks or musks? Isn't there like a, a big fish? I'm going to fuck this up. There's a big fish that kind of looks like it. Yeah, I, I'm sure you're you're talking about the same one that I am. Yeah. It's just scary. Um, And then we had something hollow, and I can't remember what it's called, Um, where it's like a bird-watching place, but apparently there used to be like a bunch of witch burnings and things like that out in the woods. I think our generation caught the ass end or were kids during the satanic panic. You Mm -hmm. know, I feel like everybody had a a different devil worshiper situation or story or place in the woods. And people would be like, I saw guys with robes in there one night. And it's like, oh, and everyone would take it seriously, you know, and and in reality it was like people with the whole like, I don't know, suppressed memory movement on CNN where they locked all those fucking people up and shit. Or 2020. I was also fascinated, though, because my I love any place. I loved any place growing up where my dad told us not to go to because his mother told him not to go to it. Whoa. I See, I backed the shit out of that. So and there's that was so many of those. Hickory, I don't remember what hollow it was because I also lived on Smoky Hollow, and I don't remember. I don't think that was it. Um, uh, but, yeah, like, my grandmother told my father, don't go there. Yeah, that's one of the ones where, despite trying to live a life rationally, I I would listen. I'd be like, you know what you said? There's yeah. a reason not to go there. Who knows? Maybe there's like, um, they have sinkholes or some shit, and they just don't want you to go there. Or maybe I mean, there's some fucked up shit. Ghosts are scary, but serial killers are the real threat. <laughs> yeah, serial killers are much scarier. We had a very similar bride urban legend, except ours was also on a curved road called Snake Road, and there's also one on Suskin Road, but that was like for the kids who lived on you know the other side, the south side of Scranton. Something for um, ours, uh, yeah, something for everybody. Ours was you had to pick her up if you saw her, or you would die. So if you see her on the side of the road on her wedding night where she got killed, you had to pick her up and then drive her to where her house was, and she would let you know, and then she gets out of the car. And if you didn't, then you were cursed forever. That's terrifying. Yeah, a scary one. So did any of your friends pick her up? Or no, say they no, did. No, nobody said that they did. I think that there was a story of some kids who had uh, one of the girls dressed up like that, and they like went out and picked her up and scared the shit out of their their siblings probably for the rest of their life. Fun fact, though, on a road really close to there one time, I was with my friend, one of my best friends, Curtis, whom I played with in a band before for, before this one, and we were driving up to his parents' house after one of us had worked. So this was like 11.30 p.m. He was a little bit older, um, so I was still in middle school, and he's in high school or whatever. We're driving up this road, or maybe I was in high school, I forget. We're driving up the road, and there's, sure, there's a woman who looked extremely distressed and disturbed in kind of like gown-ish clothing on the side of the road that were no houses there, and she was just walking down the road, and we were driving, and we just drove past her. We didn't stop. We didn't freak out. We were just like, oh, my God, you see that? Keep going, keep going, keep going, and realized that it was probably someone who needed help in some yeah. capacity. It may have, like left the house but it was so fucking scary and we were so stoned which was really dumb that we we you know we let her we let her keep walking on down the road in the middle of the woods damn yeah that's so scary. Was close to it but uh so tarot cards mm-hmm. now i heard you say a really interesting thing about tarot cards i i play this game i played this game with um uh, beth ann and her friends called goddess cards so it's very similar to tarot cards and that each card has a meaning and you ask a question and then the person who's doing your reading will pull the cards out and then you interpret the question that you ask based off of the cards. Sure. Now, I don't 
you know believe that the cards are being destined or have some type of like otherworldly or consciousness influenced even thing but i do think it's it's a fun game and it's also useful in the same way that you watch a movie like you can look at the thing that you're talking about in a different frame like if you look at the card you don't say oh that means x is going to happen it means oh i wonder what about this relates to that and there's like a guide for the card so it's a sure. lot more nuanced than i'm than i'm saying but like what do you, what do you like about that kind of shit like tarot cards so i just have always had a penchant for things like that and I guess like my my upbringing like when I was 16 and you know when everybody starts questioning their religious upbringings and what they choose to believe my father decided to tell us that he thought he was Wiccan and so like that's a hell of a timing for what a 16 year old girl <laughs> yeah what a time <laughs> but it also just kind of opened my eyes to like um whatever resonates with you and whatever kind of gives you meaning and I've always just been fascinated by that and um so tarot cards were really fascinating to me because, you know, I've I've had my cards read by people in the past. Has it turned out to be true? Yes. Do I did I also have a real skepticism to it to be like, did I kind of ever since that seed was planted, did I essentially make it happen on my own anyway? Did I hear what I wanted to hear to help solidify the decisions that I made after that? Um, or did I not hear what I wanted to hear? So I tried harder. <laughs> You know, anything like that. And and what I like about tarot and kind of how I've even approached it is I started reading every, like, my cards every day as a writing prompt. Whoa. So. That's fucking cool. So, how, how did that man, like, you know, what was your process? How did that manifest? So basically, whenever you're doing a tarot reading, I don't necessarily view it as a fortune-telling situation. Um if anything, to me, from my understanding and how I'm choosing to understand this, like, spiritual realm, um, I view those cards are all just kind of chance anyways. And then whatever card you pick is also by by chance. And we can de- decide whether or not chance is, like, some omniscient power forcing you or telling you or whatever. However your hand lands on the card that you people over, you're there. Yeah. And I viewed that as more of, like, a we're so not ever in the moment we're in anymore. We're always so incredibly distracted. We're always thinking about 30 different things where anytime I pick up my phone, I'm like, why did I had a reason, but I don't remember what it is. Um, And so I use tarot as a means to draw a card and meditate on whatever it means for my life at that point in time. Um, and And oftentimes, it forces me like the meaning of the card to think about a specific thing that maybe I hadn't been thinking about, or maybe it's, you know, talking about abundance or things like that. Things that I'm, you know, as I suffer through anxiety and depression in this fucking hellhole. Um, <laughs> not my house, just the year as a whole as a hellhole. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, you think about specific things that, that weren't on your subconscious, just, there. Um, So I just decided to start doing like a brain dump every time I would do the card and I would find out what it meant. And then I would just write like two or three pages every day, especially while I was on tour about what it meant and like what I was thinking, what it brought to mind in my life. Um, And I view tarot more as like a meditation, kind of like making a gratitude list, kind of like doing a brain dump, kind of like journaling. But the, the card itself pointed the direction 
I think that's so cool and fantastic because it is a practical use of it. I mean, it's a practical practice that you are inspiring yourself and and continuing to be creative and shaping the way that you think about the world. And there's still that slightly little spooky element about it that you get to keep. So you get to be like, well, weird that I pulled this card today because this is happening. Or the same thing happens later, which of course there's you know, as far as what we know about the physical and you know and non-physical world, there's no reason to think that there's no proof that they are connected. But I like that spooky shit, and I have been shown in my life over and over again, even if it's just my brain recognizing patterns, that there are these slight synchronicitous things that happen. And I think that you can increase the likelihood of those things happening by practicing stuff like that and like being practicing open your to thinking. It. Yeah, what, that's it. Being open to it is what it is. So Here's the thing: is that open. anytime you draw a card and you decide to write about it, how it pertains to your life, it's true. <laughs> so there's never going to be a drawing that's untrue. You're right. You've self-fulfilled. You make it true. Yeah. You know, and and I and I genuinely believe that there are people who are very gifted at at reading tarot cards and and putting the cards together. But no matter what combination, yes, there will be times when it's eerily on point with what you're going through. But yeah. there's also, to some degree, we're all experiencing all of these things whether or not it's on the same level, like a death or a breakup or just like an inconvenience that bummed you out for the day. You know, like good or bad, you can basically apply whatever comes up to your life. Yeah. So I think that the power in that is, is, you know, maybe the magic that I like to believe is like, this is what you should focus on today. So spend the day just thinking about this. Or sometimes if I find my mind wandering, I try to go back to the card or like, and have that kind of be like a mantra where similar to meditation, you just go back to something whenever you find yourself drifting. Wow, that's amazing. And there's like, I don't know the history of tarot cards, but I believe that they've probably been used in a similar fashion with the same things on them, with the same kind of framework, like you're mentioning for a very long time. Yeah. Um, you know, not everything that's old is great. There's a lot of institutions that aren't so good and, and thought processes, but some of these little practices that people have used for a very long time do hold weight in those regards and they can sure. be. Sure. And also it's life. not it's not always like whenever you draw like the death card or the hangman or something like that, like, you know, so many movies make it sound like, Oh my God, I'm gonna die or <laughs> you know, things like that. And and I think that if you took the mentality of of trying to pertain it to like more of the spiritual side of your life like what what is ending what needs to end or the hangman you are just kind of deeming yourself helpless in this moment what is what should you focus on yeah and that death that you're talking about doesn't necessarily mean that it something has to die because you drew the card it's right. there's already something there maybe today is the day that you think about and how inspiring thing. is that if yeah. like you start your day seeing something like okay something is just something needs to get cut because it's not serving you anymore yeah so Which, i uh, i like to use that as writing prompts because you know i don't i don't know about you but like i have a fucking hard time writing um especially right now like the creative juices are not flowing <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes like if i can find a way to inspire myself to just focus on something then I go back and read every week or so everything that I wrote and highlight some lines that I was like ooh I yeah. like that that's good or why don't I write a song about this this is cool to- yeah just totally. see what I- happens yeah, I back that. For me to get into writing, like you're mentioning, is having this some kind of practice or something making it interesting. Um, there's been so many times where I've caught myself and been like, I haven't written a word or a 
lyric or a chord in like a week, you know, and like I just feel shitty and realize that that's why I feel shitty. I'm not well, blaming you, the circumstances. You know, there's of my a life. digital tarot deck. Just get a daily card and just like use it as a writing prompt. That's such a good idea. I'm actually going to try that for sure <laughs> for a week. That's what the 2021 is going to be for me is random weird experiments. Yeah. And not the wrong kind of weird, the great kind of weird. And I'm going to try that for seven days. It's pretty Pull cool. Pull a tarot card, write about it. Yeah. That sounds great. It's real introspective, but like it's not the same kind of, I don't know, for me personally, whenever I try and write introspective, it's always kind of the same thing. So yeah. it gives me like different, kind of like Picasso, just looking at it from a different angle. Love that to be shaken out of it. And mm-hmm. uh, so speaking, we've done over an hour already. So thank you so much for coming on. But of speaking uh, of being shaken out of, what do you have coming up? How does someone watch the Kelly G show? And more importantly, what, how do you feel that your creative processes this coming year are going to be shaken out of what happened last year? Uh, before, as we get into touring, hopefully in the fall, I'll knock on every piece of wood in my house. I will you know, too. like uh, what, um, uh, what, what have you? What are you going to take away? It's a big question and yeah, really it kind is of an obnoxious p- question, but what? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I feel like I spent six to eight months of 2020 um, very much like a child having a tantrum where I was just pissed. Um, I wasn't lashing out by any stretch of the imagination, but I wasn't doing anything about like making lemonade. I was just pissed at all these lemons, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And yeah. um, because I got in the studio in January and recorded a record with Will. And to this day, it's about as known as it was on January 4th of last year, you know? Um, so speared. Yeah. So I I think I spent like the first half of the year in like a, a depression of not knowing what to do with the lack of. And then I spent the second half of the year learning that the lack of live music and my ability to release my music kind of gave me the space to figure out something new to do with it. Um, So I started the show. I also started the podcast with Dave Hidalgo Jr. called Friends with Benedicts, where we talk about tour and food, um, which you are on, uh, second episode. Um, And we're gearing up to do a second season of that this spring. And I just wanted to find a reason to play music again because I felt very lost um, and I missed talking to my friends so I wanted to do some variety show and I I really missed the community of live shows and playing a song for the green dot on my computer really wasn't cutting it but I also knew I didn't really want to do it live because you can't read the chat, you can't talk to people, you can't kind of have that moment and you can't be in the moment of playing music while you're also trying to read like sure. that's just insane um so i started doing the show and then i started learning how to use twitch and now i do twitch and i have like a digital hangout for that i just started using discord um very cool none of these things pay but uh (laughs) and require (laughs) an awful lot of work but uh i i'm really excited about this community that's building around these um, shared missed experiences. And I really love the fact that, you know, people are becoming friends because they were on Twitch on my live stream or, you know, are on Discord. And, And I think that that kind of like, it's kind of like meeting people at a show or kind of like bumping people at a show and you like say, hey, and that that sort of community is 
just gone right now. And it's something that like, whether you're a social being or not, I find that I am just missing other people, (laughs) you know, and I'm not a very social person at all, but like, geez, I haven't seen a stranger smile (laughs) in a long time. (laughs) Yeah, we are raging against hundreds of thousands of years of evolutionary biology. (laughs) Yeah, I think (laughs) I think that we can't not miss that to some degree. So I just have I think I've kind of latched onto my silver lining where like I'm happy to go online once a week or twice a week and talk to people and play music. And um, I think it's gonna, you know, once we're able to have shows again, I think I've given people like a glimpse of my real life. And I think that you know, not that I consider myself any level of celebrity whatsoever, but I also think that it's important to remember, especially after the year that we've all had, that every musician that you like is a normal person that went through something really difficult. Um, And and learning about their personal lives to some degree, you know, obviously I don't want to be a completely open book. I like having my life be private, but, you know, you feel closer to the people that support you And I think that that's only going to continue to create a better bond when you're actually able to do a show again. Um, Because when I play shows anyways, like I ramble like an idiot. I embarrass myself relentlessly, but I have always tried to like decrease the distance between the audience and myself. Sure. I don't want people to think that I'm far away. And if anything, all of these avenues that I've taken during this year have really kind of like taken that barrier down so that people know me now and people, you know, I I like that. Again, it's not a hundred percent like nobody knows my inner innermost thoughts or deeper workings, but I also think it's super important that people get to know that these people, you know, we we write, we create music, we have very like fortunate and lucky lives where we travel the world and um, get to play music for people as our job. But like, it's also been a really weird year. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the, you know, weirdest for sure in our lives. I really uh, hope that the idea of having that shared experience that you're mentioning brings you and the, your audience closer to each other is something that extrapolates out into creating somewhat of a national identity. I hope that, sure. and global, uh, but just because of the deep divides, you know, true and perceived and, you know, exacerbated on social media and, and Twitter and, and bizarre places like that. I'm hoping that after the pandemic is over, because everyone had gone through this experience, they immediately have a deeply emotional uh, similarity. They have sure. something in common that they experience that is rings with them and resonates with them at a core level of how they define themselves so you can have think of someone in all the divisions that you want whether it's the way they think or how they look or how they sound but in reality we all did the same thing so it's like oh hey geez remember when everybody everybody bought all the toilet paper you know like that's the first thing that you could connect with someone with and And i mean i'm sure you feel it too with everything that you've been doing with this and and the patreon and things like that it's it's a it's something that i never thought i would be like all in on and it's really exciting i I mean i have to do a separate twitch at 2 p.m on a friday because that's when russia people from russia can talk to me and i'm like (laughs) it's amazing like and and that's it's i've never like i've played with frank in russia but like i've never had my music played in russia and now they're watching my show and now it's like it's crazy to me like how how we're all missing 
yeah the same things totally and all going to since we're missing them we're all experiencing that loss and getting tied together yeah it's gonna be weird it's gonna be weird going out there i wonder i wonder when the next time i'm gonna hug a hug a stranger is or uh, even hug one of my friends. I feel like we're all going to have a little bit of, like, PTSD, like, not sure what's safe and what's not when we can do all of these things again. Oh, yeah. I think I, I absolutely agree. And I think that when it's over, some of us are going to be, like, rubber bands just snapping all the way to the other side. It's going to be I had a chat with one of my friends who's like, I think that we're going to, like, live harder than we've ever lived before. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that, I am pretty sure that as soon as this is unleashed, like... There will be no girls weekend that I will not attend. There will be exactly. no no wedding overseas that I will not fly to, you know? Yeah, it's going to be a roaring 20s, uh, I hope. There's not going to be any, like, the glorification of, like, the stay in bed meme that you would see people posting on Instagram before will be no longer. There will Do be I no ever more think I will blow out wine. a birthday cake ever again? Probably not. <laughs> I don't think any of us ever will, to be honest. I think about that often. Like, the next time someone passes you a bottle, will you drink out of it? Or will That's you be like, dude, let's get the cups? Some people are going to go twice as hard. Some people are, are going to be like, never again. But I think, hopefully, at least, I was talking to Chris uh, Cresswell about it. Some of us, for sure, and I hope societally will, if you're sick, you'll see somebody, you're going to see more people with masks on yes. at the grocery store next year because they have a cold. Than you than you did before, so it was very prominent in like the Asian community in Philadelphia, and uh, you know other places I'd been to hospitals when I was a delivery uh, guy out and I did bicycle delivery in West Philly for a couple of years, and you'd see random people with masks on, and it was to protect other people from you know sneezing on each other. I think that's going to be a very integral part of our yeah. society. Yeah. Do you forward. think you'd wear them on planes? Because I feel like I might just do it. I would no. I, I after reading about what they've done on the planes, no. The way oh, that that's the, tr- that's true. Yeah, actually, so I'm right. just like yeah. Uh, but would I wear it on? I'm a on bus? a Greyhound. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe I would. Why not? <laughs> I love it. But uh, thank you so very much for joining me. Oh, and, thanks so much for uh, having me. Can't wait me. to catch this the next great. show. Yeah. And until next time, we come back on again. I always have to ask somebody this while they're being recorded so that they say yes, and then I have the record of it. Absolutely. This has been a lot of fun to talk to you. Hell yeah. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. All righty. All right. Another massive thanks to Kaylee for coming on, and a huge thanks to you for listening. Got some changes coming up that I'm really excited about. We're going to play around with the format a little bit. I love to say that because it's so ambiguous it makes me sound like i'm doing more than i'm doing we're playing around the format a little bit but you'll see we got some fun episodes that are coming up please uh email me tom at futurefriday.net i would love to hear from you and unless the email gets falls through the cracks because i'm working on something ridiculous and i'm getting an enormous amount of emails from something wild i'll tell the story on the podcast eventually but give me an email tom at futurefriday.net i'll get back to you let me know who you want to hear on the show I'm having a good time with this. Uh, I'm really excited to see what comes up in the future. So have a great rest of your day. Goodbye. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs. But what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. 
New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.